This is KMUW, Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT Democracy on Tap is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on July 24th at Roxy's downtown. Sounds like I'm on. Woo! Good evening. Welcome to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo, and I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. We're very excited to kick off uh, the first of three discussions on education. We'll have, um, that's our next quarter here, so um, we'll be uh, diving into different educational subjects, and hopefully you can join us for all of those conversations. Uh, before we get going, I'd like to thank our partners for the event. First and foremost, Roxy's Downtown for the venue and the food. Roxy's always does a fabulous job with the appetizer buffet up there. If you haven't had a snack, go for it um, and help yourselves uh, throughout the event. Um, and then you can also order drinks and uh, other things if you would like. Uh, also, a big thanks to the Wichita Public Library for our further reading resource guide, which they provide to us every month. And so if you've missed a conversation ab about a subject that you're interested in, um, you can come and check that out. Um, those are really interesting guides. There are some gems in there that you can borrow from the Wichita Public Library if you would like, um, and some uh, things that you can find online as well. Um, and so thanks to the Wichita Public Library for doing that for us every month. Has everyone been to the new library? Yeah, pretty cool. Um, Anyway, I would also mention that we will be on Facebook Live and the videos from Engage ICT will then live on on uh, engageict.org. If you'd like to just go watch a previous discussion, you can do that. Um, and so know that as well. Um, we will also have a clipboard going around. It's sort of a, a sign-in sheet uh, that if you, if you let us know that you were here tonight, we will put you in a drawing for uh, a free Tanya's gift card, a $20 Tanya's gift card. So it's a, a nice little prize. Uh, that'll be going around as well. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I am going to just sort of go down the row here and let each of the panelists introduce themselves and talk about um, uh, talk about yourself and how you've come to, to this position and why you're interested in uh, and involved in early childhood education. First, we have Teresa Rupp with Child Start. Welcome, Teresa, and uh, tell us about yourself. Thanks. I'm the director of Child Start. I have been since 1983, which is an astonishingly long time. Um, I, I'm interested in this because I'm interested in this. I, my undergraduate degree was in family and child development, and I took this job because I thought that the things that we do with young children and their families would would give me an opportunity to see that the work that I did made a difference to people's lives. And I still believe that. Early childhood education makes a difference in people's lives, children and their parents. Um, Child Start is the grantee for the local Head Start program. We have eight Head Start centers in Sedgwick and Butler and Harper counties. And we run a child care resource and referral service 
do a lot of training for people who are in the business of childcare and who need additional training to maintain their licenses and help parents find childcare. It's fun. I get to go out and visit classrooms. I like it. Thank you. Next we have uh, Kim, oh, I'm sorry, Cornelia Stevens with Top Early Learning Center. Cornelia, tell us about yourself. Well, hello. Um, my name is Cornelia, as was said. I'm the executive director of Top Early Learning Center, and I've been with Top for um, six years. It'll be six years in December. Um, I initially got connected with Top because I'm actually a Top mom, uh, and that my daughter, who is now in high school, attended our preschool when she was four years old. And so I have a true um, understanding of the services that we provide and how those services benefit children long term because I see it in my own child. Uh, TOP has a mission of providing um, early, high quality early childhood education to children that live in poverty. And so a lot of our services are, are geared, all of our services are geared to help children um, enter kindergarten ready to learn. And um, so when I talk about you know my own child and the fact that I lived that life of poverty, I know what our families have been through and I know the difference that early child education made to her world. And so um, I enjoy now having the opportunity to be able to help other families um, you know, find the same success with their children and their own lives. Thank you. Um, next is Kim McDowell from Wichita State University. Do you wanna talk a little bit about the program there and about uh, your, yourself as well? Um, thanks for having me. I am Kim McDowell. I'm a professor at Wichita State. I am the program chair for the Masters of Arts in Teaching and Early Childhood Unified. Um, I'm excited to talk about the four different pathways we have at Wichita State in teacher preparation that leads to licensure in Early Childhood Unified. And in Kansas, a few years ago, um, we went from an Early Childhood License and then a separate Early Childhood Special Ed License to an Early Childhood Unified License, meaning that when you complete the licensure requirements, you are then licensed to teach both regular ed and children in special education at the early childhood level. And in Kansas, that is birth to third grade. So we have uh, four different pathways to early childhood unified in, at Wichita State in the School of Education. We have two at the undergraduate level. One is the traditional early childhood unified that's paired with elementary. Um, Jennifer Stone, Dr. Stone is the program chair for that program. We also last year launched a para-to-teacher pathway, which we call the Teacher Apprentice Program, which is a fully online program that leads to both licensure in elementary and early childhood unified. Um, and it is a fully online alternative licensure type of pathway at the undergraduate level. At the graduate level, we have also two pathways. We have the regular ECU master's degree, so a teacher who has an, an initial license who now is interested in getting her or his master's in, in Early Childhood Unified can go through an online uh, master's program. And then my program, which is an alternative licensure pathway for people who have a bachelor's degree, but it is not in education. So they come to us from nursing, from psychology, from social work, we have a few business people who've now decided that they want to be teachers of young children, and so they come through our alternative licensure program and earn a Master's of Arts in Teaching at the Early Childhood Unified level. Um, personally, I'm a former kindergarten teacher. I'm a former speech-language pathologist. I have five children myself, and so I can completely attest to the importance of good quality early childhood experiences, and my entire adult life since I was 18 has been um, devoted to finding things that work with young children, with families, and with teachers. Thank you. 
Next up, we have Catherine Mahoney with Compass Star Montessori. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your first student, you said, is, <laughs> is here as well. Thank you. Um, so I am a Montessori child myself, and 10 years ago, I started Compass Star Montessori. I am the founder, and I am the lead elementary teacher. Early childhood education is a foundation for everything else that we do, whether it's in a Montessori program or a conventional program. And just watching the development that happens, especially in the four areas of early childhood education. Um, in Montessori, we refer to it as OCCI. It's order, coordination, concentration, and independence. And every early childhood Montessori lesson is designed to help a child build those four qualities. So even though I'm in the elementary room, they carry over and I see the necessary work that the children in the early childhood are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Let's have a round of applause to welcome our panel tonight. Um, and as we get going here, um, feel free to fill out a question slip. There should be question slips on all of your tables. If you don't see one, raise your hand and Asha will bring you one. Um, and then uh, she'll collect them and uh, we'll, we'll sort of pepper those in uh, with the questions as we go forward. So uh, let's get started. Um, and I don't know who wants to jump in on this first, but can anyone kind of talk about how early childhood education has changed over time and how our expectations for it have sort of evolved. Uh, what's changed the most about it? Anyone want to jump in first? Um, I guess I'll go ahead and get started on it. Um, just viewing many conventional programs, it seems like the pendulum has been swinging back and forth for some time. Um, historically, Kindergarten, for example, was considered um, a child's work is their play. And then the pendulum began to swing the other direction and that kindergarten became more academically intensive and almost the new first grade. But I think the, a lot of educators and child development specialists are realizing that the children are missing out on the fine and gross motor of the play that they were doing previously, and also a lot of the sensorial tasks that they were doing when there was more play-oriented work in early childhood. Um, I would also add that from um, most of our students are in public school settings um, and also um, public school pre-K. Um, I would say that I have noticed a trend with, with early childhood education in conventional um, public school types of settings, moving more towards um, teachers feeling pressure to meet standards and accountability measures and, and feeling restricted in terms of the use of developmentally appropriate practices in their classroom, which would involve play. Um, they, are, they are feeling confined in their ability to do that because they are um, being mandated to meet certain standards. And I think as a profession, 
we need to find a balance in meeting standards because standards are great, right? They drive expectations and outcomes. But how can we help teachers and school districts understand that that can be done in a way that involves play, that involves self-selected learning activities, and that involves student choice? And I think there's a struggle, um, and there has been a struggle, to measure what children are able to do. And most recently, some of that came from No Child Left Behind, which was very much about measuring what, what children could do at different ages and measuring literacy and measuring numeracy and measuring, measuring, measuring. Um, I think those of us who are sitting at this table are probably in agreement that the important thing, the, some of the important tasks for young children are really not about being able to read and write, although many children are expected to be writing their names when they get to kindergarten and expected to be reading some words when they get to kindergarten. The really important things that happen at a young age are more social and emotional. And those are tasks that children have to have those things to succeed in school. School is not just academics. And life is not just academics. And the foundation of what they will become is more than academic and developmentally appropriate early childhood is about more than things that are academically measurable. Well, you, you, you took my first one, Teresa, uh, but, but which is a good thing, because we, we do think alike. We're exactly all in agreement there. It's not just about the academics anymore. I think that's the big, a big swing. It is the, from the social emotional perspective. I think there's also the greater emphasis on uh, um, the whole child and by the whole child, that also means the family. Um, the, a recognition that the parents really are our children's first teachers, not us. And we have to be able to educate and support our parents if we want to be able to educate and support our children. Uh, there's also a, a big emphasis now, and we see it happening across the nation, on understanding how uh, stressors in our everyday lives are impacting our children and the things that happen in school. And so there is um, a big movement uh, now, especially at the early childhood level, in uh, working on those, uh, decreasing those stressors so that at the home life we have stability so that we have um, better success in teaching them. So uh, maybe... Um not emphasizing the numbers or the measurements, that's, that's one, uh, one thought. But then we also hear sometimes that third grade is this important sort of deadline for children um, and that they need to have achieved this certain level of skill in different areas by this time or else they're kind of bound to fall behind in the long term. Um, where did this idea come from? Is it really true? Um, and if so, do we know kind of why that is? This is the other side, yeah, go ahead, Kim. 
Um, well, first of all, I will say it's never too late, right? We never, ever give up on any child. I will say my area of research is literacy, so I will say in the area of literacy, there is some very compelling evidence that indicates that if we don't do early intervention and we let the child just kind of flounder, come third grade, the type of intervention that you have to do from that point forward to catch them up is much more intensive and requires much more time and support at that point. Whereas if we had started providing some support in language and in literacy types of experiences earlier, the time and energy it would take to catch that child up would not be as intense. You're all so polite. <laughs> well, when you look, think about brain development, um, 90% of our brain, um, it, the foundation for brain development occurs uh, before we're five years eight of, of age. And so there are some um, maybe theories or thoughts that in third grade we're going to bring out all of these new computer programs or do all of these things to help get our kids ready. But the reality is at that point it's too late um, because if the foundation for brain development happens before you're even five, um, then you're really going to have much more, uh, a much more difficult time in being able to help our children uh, get prepared. Um, we have a longitudinal study where we've been tracking our children through the K-12 system and what we see in our data is that children that attend a high quality early learning center, center already by the time they get to third grade and by the time we start taking state assessments or whatnot. And, and so we're able to prove through data uh, that it makes a difference. And there's less money that is spent on special education and all of the intervention that Kim was referring to that has to happen if, if they weren't, didn't get that preparation. There's an important, um, I'm gonna, if I could see you, I would see you nodding your heads um, because it's, it's become kind of an, I hear, I hear this from people who are not early childhood people and who are not public school people. Um, the issue with third grade is that the, the expectations of children are different from third grade to fourth grade. And the expectation is that up to third grade, children are really learning to read, learning to read fluently. And after, four, after third grade, they have to read to learn in order to, to keep up with the material that's being covered. They have to be able to read. And if they are not reading well and fluently when they get into fourth grade, then it's hard to keep up with the coursework. It's hard to keep up, it's hard to follow. So it's really that that's the magic about third grade. And there's a lot of research that shows that that's true and that reading really makes the difference at, and, that, at that's, and that that is an important turning point. Um, I think that all of the ladies have made excellent points so far. I was just going to throw in, um, in Montessori, we look at four different planes of development. And the second plane of development is when children are seeking independence in intelligence. They're working towards their ideas, their learning, and nine is the midpoint of that plane. So it starts at six, ends at 12. And from six to nine, they're primarily working on developing their skills and 
just gaining lots of different things like literacy. And then from nine to 12, they are working on using those skills. And like you were talking about, just the reading to learn rather than learning to read. Interesting. So, but then there's sort of this give and take between, you know, do we let them have play or do we push them to have skills? I mean, how do you weigh that? Yeah. Well, that you can do both of those things. Okay. <laughs> is I, I, I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. Children learn through play, um, especially when you're looking at you know the, the early childhood perspective. Children learn through play, and it's it's yes, we want the physical you know play, but um, a lot of brain development occurs when you're just creating, when you're just learning to explore, when you um, are developing those critical thinking skills, trying to solve a problem and put together a puzzle or learn how to build, and uh, so all of that is playing but it's intentional play. We're learning while we're doing that, and that's how brain development occurs. That's how instruction should occur uh, from an early childhood perspective. And I would add that um, I think in some classrooms, and I, I call it the, the kill and drill <laughs> approach, <laughs> you know, how many of you remember the flashcards? Like you learned words or you learned sounds and letters with flashcards. I call that kill and drill. Um, that is not developmentally appropriate. There are a lot of really engaging, authentic types of language and literacy activities you can do in early childhood classrooms that involve play, but yet still target phonological awareness and rhyme and all of those foundational literacy pieces so that when developmentally they're ready to move to paper pencil kinds of tasks, they have that foundation that's been done in an appropriate young child manner. Specifically to the Montessori method, if you watch an early childhood classroom, you'll see them doing many, many activities that you would not immediately associate with literacy. Um, for example, spooning beans or tweezing beads from one jar to another. And that work consistently goes from left to right over and over again. The child's eyes are tracking left to right and their fine motor is being improved. Washing a table, the children are learning to do this with counterclockwise circles going from the top left-hand corner of the table across the table over and over again. It's just training the eye and the hand through seeming play activities. Um, so, Catherine, I know that Montessori represents sort of a different philosophy on early education. Um, can you talk about that briefly and maybe outline uh, that against other philosophies that are used today? You all can jump in at that point as well. Um, well, I wouldn't necessarily say that we have a different philosophy than other early childhood educators, especially listening to the speakers here today. Um, so the elevator speech is Maria Montessori started her program in the early 1900s. The children were around three to six years old because they were not yet incorporated into the Italian school system. And it was in the poor neighborhoods of, um, I, I apologize, I think it was Rome, that the school was started because all of these young children were being left at home while their parents went out to work and they were becoming thieves and vandals and they were just wrecking havoc on the city. So the government gave Maria Montessori money to start a program and get these children off the streets. 
And so she incorporated all of these different hands-on materials to engage these children. And by using hands-on materials, using one-on-one -on -one lessons with the children, by letting the children lead with their interest, and of course everyone's heard the phrase, follow the child with Montessori education, um, she was able to work with these children, and many of them were reading and writing and doing basic arithmetic by the time they entered the Italian school system at age six. So I'm not sure if that covers the basis or if anyone had anything they wanted to jump in on. Uh, that does, yeah. I, I'm not sure that everyone is aware of what Montessori is, so I just wanted to get that out there. But I mean, are there different uh, philosophies on early learning that are all you know used concurrently in different schools, or is it all uh, pretty much from the same seedling nowadays? It is kind of pretty much from the same thing. You know, we talk about developmentally appropriate practice which is a real early childhood jargony kind of thing to say. But it is about following the child. It is about saying, well, what's, what kinds of things is a two-year-old working on? Let's help work on those things. And when they're beyond the two-year-old tasks and they're ready to tackle the next thing, let's help them work on that thing. I would say most of us in the profession of early childhood education probably follow somewhat of a constructivist approach, um, which is that children need to actively construct in order to have learning occur, which is very different from the old philosophy of children are an empty pail that we fill, right? So it's not, learning is not passive. Um, most of our philosophies probably align to the notion that learning needs to be active and children need to be constructing in order for learning to occur. Um, how early in the day is appropriate to send children to school and are kids getting enough sleep and how does that affect education? That's our first audience question of the evening. There's a bunch in there. This makes me laugh because this is going to age me, but when I taught kindergarten, we still had nap time. So, um, and I will tell you that probably 95 of 95% of my children napped. Like they, by midday, they needed a little downtime to decompress. That nap time doesn't happen, at least in the public school setting anymore in early childhood. Um, in terms of an official start time, um, there's actually some research that says that young kids should start earlier in the day and adolescents should start later in the day. And if you look at the way our school system is set up, it's the exact opposite, right? Middle school and high school start earlier than um, elementary or early childhood. But I don't know that research really indicates that you know, 8 o'clock a.m. is the perfect time for early childhood. But I do think, um, and it kind of goes back to the notion of following the child's lead, it probably varies based on the child. And I'm not suggesting that we have staggered start times for every child, but perhaps we need to have options for if a child needs to rest, let's give them the opportunity to rest. Um, it doesn't need to be full-on nap time, but maybe there we should build into the schedule some downtime, whether it's reading or listening to some quiet music, there's um, a movement in schools now to um, help target mindfulness, which there's a lot of research on how mindfulness can help children, and it, it relates to trauma-informed care. Maybe we build some mindfulness time into a classroom, again, to help children focus on some quietness and some mental clarity time. But in terms of actual start times, I, I don't know that there's a lot of research on that. Is the mindfulness something that's starting to happen in schools here, or is it just being talked about at the moment? We have um, actually 
several schools, um, you know, in, in Kansas actually and across the nation that are focused on trauma-informed schools. And one of the, um, the practices that's used in trauma-informed schools is, is mindfulness. And it, it comes from the theory that, um, I mentioned earlier about the, the, the stressors that are happening in children's lives. And so as an adult, if I have a difficult time in the morning uh, because my teenager wants to wear something to school that I'm not interested in her wearing, um, you know, then I'm stressed as a parent, uh, you know, because uh, we've had that battle. And yes, you are going to wear a tank top under that shirt. And yes, you are going to whatever. And we have that conversation. But I know how to calm myself down. Um, before I get to work. I know that I can listen to my audiobooks. I know that I can listen to music. I can do things to help get myself to a level plane by the time I get to school that I can function. A four-year-old doesn't know how to do that. Um, and so they have stressors, things that happened in their home the night before or the next morning. Um, they didn't sleep a lot because um, parents oftentimes are working two, three jobs. And so the child is at one person's house until 10 or 11 o'clock and then their sleep is disrupted when they go home then to their bed. And so uh, they have all of these stressors and they get to school and we end up seeing um, you know, the ramifications of all of that stressor because they don't know how. And so the, the practice of mindfulness is helping our children learn how to calm and to self-regulate. Um, and so that's part of what, you know, happens for a lot of our kids, not just to get the day started, uh, but then periodically throughout the day, uh, that's what has to happen. And we begin to start teaching them how um, to, to, to self-regulate, to calm themselves down in those moments of stress. Now, I don't know how much of this is happening in the public schools, and you may have a better notion of that. Um, we are using mindfulness in Head Start classrooms, and kids respond to it and are able to calm themselves down better. Um, and I would, I would guess that some of the issues that we see in elementary schools, some of the growing and and for all the years that I have been in the field I have heard people talk about children have a harder time now than they did you know 20 years ago people were saying gee kids are kids are having more trouble with behavior now than they did 10 years ago and and 10 years ago people were saying gee it's just getting harder kids are having a harder time with behavior than they did so I, I keep hearing this, and it seems to be getting worse, and it's a, a real struggle to, for kids to manage behavior. And you've, you have heard the things about the public schools adding more mental health this year, adding some more approaches to, to help kids deal with the issues that are, that are affecting their lives, and mindfulness may be one of the things that really can make a difference there. Um, what role does electronic media play in the classroom today? I mean, is this, is this sort of tied in here? Is there uh, a difference in, I mean, this is sort of going into another topic, but levels of empathy in children, I know is something that I've heard talked about. Um, are there ties to electronics and devices that you guys are seeing that early? On that topic, I think that probably everyone in this room can agree that the average American needs to put down their phone. 
They need to put down their device. It doesn't matter how old you are, you need to put it down for a while. Um, I came across a study, it was the UCLA sixth grade study, I don't know um, if everyone's familiar with it, but they essentially took a group of sixth graders and half of them were taken away from their devices for a week. They were sent to an outdoor activity camp and the other half were at home doing their typical everyday activities. And they found on returning from the outdoor camp that the sixth graders who'd been away from their devices were doing better on recognizing um, emotions by facial recognition. Now, I mean, that study is flawed because the children were not in their typical environment. I mean, you could say that being around trees made them better at empathy, or sleeping in the woods made them better at empathy. It doesn't go specifically to the devices, but when we look at how children learn empathy, they need eye contact, and there is no amount of educational programming or educational apps that will ever be able to replace that. And this is my own little soapbox, so I'll stop talking soon. But even just walking through the grocery store or going to a restaurant and seeing toddlers focused in on tablets rather than making eye contact with their parents is heartbreaking to me. I remember rolling through the grocery store reciting, brown bear, brown bear, what do you see, four times just so I could get through my grocery shopping. But I was still making eye contact with my children. So I will step back and let the others <laughs> Empathy is all about relationships. You don't learn empathy from a device. You learn empathy from your parents who care for you. And you learn empathy from your teachers who care for you. And you learn empathy from talking to your peers or as, as little children learn to play beside somebody and then maybe learn to play with somebody, that's where empathy comes from. It's, it is taught by people. And I, I am absolutely with you. Not only is it heartbreaking to see little children transfixed by screens, because they are, all of them, it is uh, kind of horrifying to watch parents get out of the car on their device, walk into the center, walk down the hall, pick up their child, walk back, one hand holding the child's hand and the other hand holding the device and have never looked at their child when they pick them up. Uh, you, it's hard not to scream. <laughs> it's hard not for teachers not to say, will you put that down and pay attention to your child? I, I would say that it's a bit um, naive of us to expect that technology is going to go away. It's not. Um, there is a lot of research that indicates that because of the increased exposure that kids have to technology and devices, that their attention span is shorter, that they um, expect to be entertained while being taught, which has impacted my field, which is teacher preparation, because now <coughs> we have to figure out how do we do all we need to do as teachers, but keep it at a level of engagement that will keep the kids' attention or structured in little mini lessons because their attention span has decreased because of their interactions with all this um, electronic devices. I do think as teachers, we need to find ways to integrate effectively 
electronics and computer-aided instruction or whatever technology into our classrooms because it's not going to go away. But then to teach children and families how to set boundaries and how to establish some, you know, no device time so that we can find this balance and we can build relationships and we can work on all these social-emotional skills while not completely foregoing the notion of technology. Research, um, research on the, the um, study that resulted in a, a 30 million word gap. And what it basically said was that children that uh, lived in poverty heard 30 million fewer words than children who did not live in poverty. And that doesn't mean that you open a Webster's Dictionary and there's 30 million words that the children didn't hear. Um, it means that someone that did not live in poverty had someone speaking to them more frequently than someone that did not. And when we look at technology and the fact that we have um, you know, parents who Again, it's not by, by choice, they're, they're working a lot. Uh, they're home, they're tired, uh, so they're gonna sit the child in front of the television while they cook. Well, that one-year-old that's sitting in front of that television is not getting the human interaction. They're not hearing the words that they need for language development. And so if you're hearing 30 million fewer words, um, then that means that when it's time for you to learn to communicate, when it's time for you to learn to read, um, then you, there's, there's, there's 30 million words that you have not heard yet that impact that language development. And so when we think about um, you know, the importance of just when you're changing the child's diaper, talking about their toes and their fingers and their belly button and their everything as opposed to just sitting, the, you know, watching the TV while you're changing the diaper, um, you know, or putting them in front of the TV while you're cooking, that makes a huge difference when it comes to language development. Um, but then that interaction, I mean, even as adults, we're seeing that soft skills that are just the being able to sit and look at someone and have a conversation in a job interview and maintain eye contact. Employers are actually stating that the thing that they're struggling with the most now with people is are the soft skills of just learning how to relate uh, to someone. And part of that is because it's easier to send a text message to tell you how I feel um, than it is for you to actually me to actually look you in the face and do that. And so we've lost some of that skill. Cornelia, can you also share some maybe techniques that educators use with children under third grade to kind of maximize their potential? Uh, what are you doing at, at top early learning centers that, that you could maybe share with people? Okay. Uh, so um, there was a mention of, of, of you know, projects, and, and um, project-based learning is a very big um, thing right now where our children are learning. Um, for example, they learned how to make a robot, and in learning to make that robot, the robot they're building. And so we talked about the, the importance of being able to construct and build. There's a lot of emphasis right now on STEM. Uh, we emphasize STEAM, so that's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And so in doing that, we have four-year-olds that learn how to mix um, you know, vinegar and baking soda uh, with uh, some food coloring, and I walked into a room, and the four-year-old said, "Look, Miss Cornelia, that's a chemical reaction." Well, that's not a phrase that we would typically think that a four-year-old can say, but it's not because the four-year-old can't say it; it's because nobody's introduced that to him. And so we uh, are giving our children opportunities to learn and grow and develop the critical thinking skills uh, that we'll need further uh, as we as we further down go further down the line in education. And it's through those projects, those activities that the children can get fully engaged in that 
we're able to then incorporate all the language, the literacy, the math, the science, the social studies, the, 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 the social skills that are needed. Um, and you kind of blend all of that together as opposed to it all being some separate component. And so it's really based off of, you know, what are our kids interested in? How do we keep them engaged? And then how do we take that level of engagement and help them and develop the skills they need to learn? Um, Kim, is there an element to your work at WSU that involves educating parents at all? Um, what tips do you give to caregivers to kind of build on that? Uh, yes, every student in our in any of our four pathways takes a course that's um, specifically devoted to, it's called um, collaboration with parents and other professionals. Um, because what we find oftentimes is if you are the early childhood teacher, uh, you work with other adults that come into the classroom as well as collaborating with parents. And so um, we really encourage children to, I mean not children, students to recognize again that parents are a valuable resource and they truly know their child better than anybody else. They may not have the education level, the, you know, the formal education level that the teacher does, but that parent has been with that child since birth typically. So um, respecting and valuing the parent input um, there, there have been numerous studies on parent training and the effectiveness of parent training in terms of building language skills, um, building literacy skills, and we encourage our students to participate in, in services or parent workshops to help promote parent skills because some parents, all parents want to do right by their kids. Um, some of them struggle with having to work multiple jobs and other um, stressors in their life, but every parent wants to do right by their kids. It's just sometimes they lack the understanding or the knowledge and so as teachers I think it's important for us to do outreach and to do some parent training in terms of how to how to do interaction when you're sorting laundry let's talk about the different color socks and let's sort the socks into different piles based on color every parent can do that it doesn't even require formal literacy or being able to read but that's language and so as early childhood teachers um, in our programs we really stress the importance of um, providing some parent resources, some parent training, and some educational opportunities for parents and other caregivers to help foster and kind of extend the learning that happens in the classroom back at home. Uh, at our school, we have um, a very large parent in, uh, education or parent involvement uh, program because we realize that without really educating and preparing our parents, um, we only have our kids until they're five. And so after that, um, you know, the, it's the parents, you know, that then have to be the ones that are their advocates and that support them through their educational system. We have parent support groups uh, that are there to be able to help our parents at a former job we, I, I worked at. We had a, a slogan that said, you know, kids don't come with instructions. And so when I had my, my son, who's now 25, you know, I had my baby and they said, good luck. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, I had never been a parent before and I had to figure it out. We, we make it up as we go along and sometimes it works well and okay I won't do that again and then I'll try something different and so uh, you know parenting is hard and so we help our parents become better parents by giving the support groups by having um, parent education classes by teaching our parents parent leader leadership skills you know a lot of times we think uh, parent advocacy skills and we, we think we're advocating but really all we're doing is making people mad uh, you know because we want some change or something to happen and so how do you advocate in a way that is going to create change um, and so we, we do things to try to be able to better educate and empower our parents so that as their kid, our kids leave us and enter the K-12 system, they can be the voice for, those, for their children. 
I don't think you can work with kids without working with parents. And one of the one of the big jobs of a teacher, I think, is to to be the link between the knowledge that you have about children learning and about child development to the parent who doesn't who doesn't think about it the same way you do, who doesn't observe it in the same way that you do, who wouldn't call it by the same name that you call it, but nevertheless pays attention to their child and sees what's happening with their child. And if you as a teacher can ask questions that draw out the knowledge that a parent has and can share with the parent what you observe about their child and what, what that tells you about what they want to learn or what they are ready to learn, then you can really forge an important partnership that, that puts the parents and teachers on the same side, which is being on the side of the child. And that's what you want. I mean, everybody who's had a child and had a teacher has had a, a wonderful teacher who was on your side and on your child's side. And everybody's had a terrible teacher who was not good at it. And we need to be doing that. We need to be figuring out how to do that. And that's one of the, there is so much for a teacher to know. There's so much for a teacher to know about children and there's so much for a teacher to know about children and their parents and their family and putting that together and being on the same team with them. And that's, that's what TOP does, that's what Head Start does. I'm sure that's what Montessori does. You know, we're all in that business. That segues nicely into the next audience question. Um, just what are some, what are the challenges that the child care early education workforce uh, face right now? What are the, the big things that you guys are facing? There's not enough workforce. There's, no, there's a lot more kids that need good teachers than there are good teachers. And teachers are not well compensated and people who might be interested in being teachers are choosing to do other things where they can support themselves and their families because it's hard to live on those wages. And particularly in early childhood, um, it's, you know, we all hear about public schools and how public school teachers are underpaid. I'm here to tell you, in the private childcare world, it's worse. Kim, you looked like you wanted to say something. I was going to say preach. Um, so I will say there, 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 is, there is a teacher shortage. And in Kansas, for the first time in my adult life, there is a shortage of elementary teachers. Um, we have positions going unfilled or they are being filled by long-term subs. And that includes the early childhood, so pre-K through third grade. Um, I would echo Teresa's sentiment. Um, the profession lacks... Um, respect. Um, we, uh, and you know, there's this big debate about teacher pay and well, you only work nine months. Well, that's up for debate because 
teachers work all year round. They may not be in their classroom teaching kids, but good teachers are working on planning, they're working on professional development and those types of things over the summer. Um, so there's, you know, it, it is a lower paid profession. Um, it is, there is a lack of respect given to teachers. And then there's this dichotomy that I mentioned earlier in terms of teachers coming out of colleges knowing what they want to do in their classroom and then being faced with reality in terms of what the school district is telling them they have to do because of mandates and no child left behind and state standards or you know um, pacing guides or you know scripted curriculum or whatever it is that, that the teacher is facing and then as a new teacher they want to keep their job so they're not going to really challenge the system because they want to keep their job and yet they're internally fighting this notion of this is not what I should be doing with these kids. Where's the self-selected learning? Where's the center station time? Where's the rest time? Where's the play time? Um, and so I would say those are some of the challenges that I don't know that they're new. I mean, I can tell you I've been in education since I was 18. We've always had those kinds of um, challenges, but I think maybe we're, we're raising the awareness of some of the challenges that we face. I think another challenge is um, being funded at an, an adequate level to be able to provide quality. Um, because many people, uh, there are people who believe that, you know, for example, we, we are a licensed child care center, but we don't consider ourselves child care providers. Uh, we, are, we provide early child education. And unfortunately, the funding streams that support early child education don't really support the level of quality that our children and families need and deserve. And so we're constantly looking to find ways to um, blend and braid and um, twist money around together to be able to provide the level of quality that is needed uh, for education to occur and for children to be safe and in a stable and nurturing environment. And so uh, there's definitely the need for, for a mind shift, um, you know, where uh, early child education is, is looked at and treated the same way as our funding for our, our K-12 system, which I know is not funded at an adequate level, and I'm, I'm not saying that by any means, but we're lower than that. And so, so, uh, so that's definitely something we need some work on. And if you remember what Cornelia said about the 95% of brain development occurs before the age of five, then it would seem that we would want to really put some resources into working with children before they're five years old. And we are not very good at doing that. Um, what differences might exist in early ed systems that serve children with special needs? Sorry, you know, that was an... It's the same thing, is it not? We're, when we talk about a unified degree, it's the same stuff. I mean, you have to have some particular skills to work with a child who has a particular kind of disability. But it's really, you can learn that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say good teaching is good teaching. Good teaching is good for all kids. Um, the unified notion really focuses on universal design for learning which is um, an approach to learning that makes your environment accessible to all learners versus the, the notion that's kind of hit schools in the last 10 years, which is differentiated instruction, which is reactive. So universal design for learning is proactive. We're going to set up the curriculum and set up the environment in a way that regardless of whether you have an exceptionality or not, you will be able to access 
the material, the content, and the knowledge that we're trying to help you develop versus the differentiated instruction approach, which is I've created this great lesson, it's great, and oh wait, Johnny learned slightly differently, so let me differentiate something for Johnny instead of being proactive and setting it up in a way that allows them to access it without needing to be isolated out or pulled out or given different instructional materials. That you specifically mentioned preparing the environment. Um, Maria Montessori initially developed her materials while she was working with institutionalized children. And when she brought them into classrooms with typical children, they were working just the same. It's like preparing the environment, preparing the materials to work universally with children. So how much do you see personalities and learning styles playing into their successes and failures now is this is is that a real thing or is it just sort of something that we like to say um, is most early education set up to well it seems like it used to be that education was sort of set up to reward those that conform and now after this conversation I'm wondering how you know how true that is um, so don't throw tomatoes because this may not be popular opinion, but um, multiple intelligences from Gardner actually has no research substantiating it. So we have this notion that, well, I'm a visual learner, or I'm an auditory learner. Children learn in all ways. We have preferences in the way that we learn. If you tried to get me to do math through auditory input, nope. Give me paper, pencil. But that's not a learning style, that's a learning preference. And I think as teachers, it's important for our teachers to get to know the preferences that children like to learn through. Um, but let me see a show of hands. How many of you intentionally seek out opportunities to learn by doing something you don't like? Okay, so we have one. Most of us, most of us seek out opportunities to learn through things that we like, right? Does that mean we shouldn't be exposed to opportunities to do something maybe out of our comfort zone? So I think it's important for teachers to know that the student's learning preference and the way that they prefer to learn, but to still provide opportunities for other types of learning um, so that they can be exposed and grow in those domains as well. Okay. <laughs> so I want to make sure no one else wanted to chime in. Um, another audience question here, should preschoolers have homework? Say it at once. <laughs> no. That's <what> I <laughs> <laughs> the only homework a child should be doing is work within the home. If a preschooler is given the task of feeding the dog, that is their work. And they feel pride with that work. If their work is to carry the silverware from the dinner table to the dishwasher, or even to get up on a step stool and wash the silverware, that is their work. But sending a preschooler home with worksheets or some such paperwork as that, it's not necessary or helpful. I would also say that the whole notion of homework in general is additional practice of a skill that's already been learned and cemented in a child's skill set at school. And oftentimes, and I'm speaking from being a parent of some middle school kids, um, Sometimes homework gets sent home because it didn't get done during the day, 
but it's not something that they've already learned. And so then they're trying to learn it at home with a mom who I don't remember how to do algebra, especially this new way. So we have to call sister who's in college, right? So that's not what homework should be anyway. Now, do I think we, should, we could encourage parents, do some reading at home, right? Um, do some language types of activities. Incorporate language into unloading the dishwasher. So those are just extension activities or opportunities to expand upon learning, but it's not... It's not worksheet, it's not cut and paste and match. Because then sometimes what happens, and this, um, I remember when I was a kindergarten teacher, we did Book It, the, whole, the old pizza, actually I think they still do it, the Pizza Hut program, if you read so many books, you, okay, well what happens with the kid whose p mom works third shift or second shift and um, is being watched by an older sibling or a neighbor, that child gets penalized, right? The child never earns the Book It coupon because nobody's at home to read to them. So then we're penalizing the child for something that is completely out of his or her control because we've assigned this homework. So I think we can encourage opportunities for additional learning and practice and those kinds of things, but again, in a, in a naturalistic setting and in a way that just further allows additional practice and not new learning opportunities where perhaps the parents can't support that. And I would suggest that if there's going to be homework, it's for parents. <laughs> that that if if that a teacher is probably going to say, here's what we talked about today in school. We took a walk, we picked up leaves and acorns, we found some bugs, we we talked about those kinds of things. And so if you wanted to take a walk tonight with your child your child could tell you some things about what they learned in school. Or if you wanted to ask them about those kinds of things, you could do that. And, and that's what we do, is talk about what did we do in school today or what are we going to do in school this week and suggest that there are things that parents could talk about with their kids. Are we talking about outer space this week? Well, you could go out after dark and look at stars. That, and that's not homework for a kid. That's, that's doing something fun with their dad. Um, in your opinions, how soon should kids learn to read? And is there a benefit to earlier reading abilities? <laughs> I have, totally have to jump in on this one. Okay, so there are stages, there's actually a hierarchy in learning to read. Um, children don't just enter kindergarten and, okay, let's do phonics and it's going to work. So in order for children to be able to understand and identify and learn letter sound correspondence or that A says A and A uh and A uh and all the other sounds that A makes in our language, they have to move through these levels. The very first level of development is an awareness of words, okay? We can't start in f at the age of five and say, okay, this is the word cat, and cat says k-a-t. If the child isn't aware that a word is comprised of individual sounds, you trying to teach them individual sounds within a word is not going to make any sense to them. And I think sometimes kindergarten teachers on up really feel pressure because guess where the curriculum starts? Pretty much at the letter sound correspondence level. Um, maybe you touch on some um, rhyming words or some syllabication or breaking words apart into syllables, but some of that makes no sense to kids because they're not 
at that level of awareness. So I would say there is no magic age that a child should be taught to read. It really is where are they at developmentally. And in order to know that, the teacher needs to know that, which means the school districts need to give the teachers time to listen to kids, to talk to kids, to do what I call kid watching, right? To see where is this child, and it doesn't mean giving them a standardized test necessarily because they get a lot of that. Um, so it's finding out where is this child's level at in terms of these phonological awareness skills, and then tailoring instruction based on where they're at. Um, there's this theory called Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, which is where, here's where the child's at, and then there's this continuum of where the child can move to. So if the child's here, it's the teacher's job to scaffold and provide instruction to move them to the next level. If they're here and we are teaching over here, we are missing that zone and we are missing opportunities for the child to learn. So I would say, you know, in pre-K and in kindergarten and in first grade even, we really need to get to know our kids and where they're at developmentally in terms of literacy and language skills and teach where they're at to move them to the next level. Sorry, classroom, um, you'll find sandpaper letters and you'll also find the box of sand with the letters that are propped up in front of it. And that's just purely sensorial work. So they're being introduced to the shape of the letter, the feel of the letter, how their hand is moving when they are making the letter without you know, pressure towards, we have to make a word. But then they are naturally drawn towards, well, if I put this letter next to this letter next to this letter, I wrote something, and that is their very beginning move towards reading with the writing. Um, what about parental expectations in all of this? How do you see uh, different even parenting styles affecting children's learning uh, at an early age? Not, it's not uncommon for uh, one of our center directors to have a parent walk up and say, well, why aren't you sending homework? Uh, you know, and so that's interesting that that was one of the questions because we have parents that will come home, come, come and say, where is the homework? Because they have children that maybe are in elementary school or they're in middle school and they get homework and so they're thinking, okay, they're sending their child to a school. We call ourselves a school, so where's the homework? And so, uh, so there's that. Developmentally, uh, we've had situations where, you know, the parent is, is frustrated because the two-year-old is not potty trained. Well, um, the two-year-old's not supposed to be potty trained, and that's, you know, developmentally. I mean, there's some kids that, you know, have gotten that figured out at two, but for some kids, we have three, three-and-a-half-year-olds that are still trying to figure that out. And so, you know, parents, you know, understanding child development, um, you know, is, is hard, but you don't know what you don't know. And so that's part of the, the reason for, for the parents' ed education is to be able to help them better understand child development uh, so that they don't have unrealistic expectations for their children. Uh, because... Again, you don't know what you don't know. And so um, trying to help make sure that we educate the parents, um, you know, so that they really are helping their children develop appropriately um, and not pushing them um, to areas where they shouldn't be. And I would piggyback on that. Um, some of the training that we do with our students um, helps kind of set the stage for some of that. Um, and in particular, I'm speaking about invented spelling which is a phase that most children go through when they're learning to read and write. Um, they will write out words based on how it sounds in their head, right? Um, 
instead of the traditional spelling. Um, if you think about the English language, we have 44 sounds in our language, and we only have 26 letters that represent those 44 sounds. So it is complex. Learning how to read and write in the traditional conventional way is complex. So most children move through this phase called invented spelling. It happens a lot in pre-K, K, and 1. So we train our teachers to send home an informational newsletter to let parents know before we ever send home any writing samples from the children, this is normal. And if you can't read it, it's okay. Ask your child to read it to you and they'll probably be able to. Um, so it's, it's, it's providing information on what is normal, right? Because parents want to make sure their kids are doing what they should be doing. And so providing information up front um, seems to be helpful for a lot of parents. Um, can you all recommend any resources for parents? Um, how would you recommend continuing the practice of learning empathy outside of the classroom, for example? We talked a little bit about eye contact and just interactions, but are there any other things that you would suggest? Be empathetic to your child. That's how children learn. They watch you and they do what you do. And so if you respond to them empathetically, they will respond to other people empathetically. If you, if you get up in the night to console your child who has waked up and is crying and you pat them on the back until they go back to sleep, they'll know that's what you do. And if you have a conversation with them at breakfast and talk about what's going to happen to them during the day, that's what they'll do. Um, if you want a child to be kind, you better be kind. If you want a child to have a conversation, you better have a conversation with them. I, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. I would say if you're looking for formal resources, um, NAEYC, which is the National Association of the Education of Young Children, um, has some great parent resources available online. Also, Kansas State Department of Education um, has recently launched what they call the Kansas CAN initiative, which focuses all on social emotional learning and trauma-informed care. And there are some resources at KSDE's website that also provides um, information and resources for parents as well. Um, now, uh, here's another audience question. If the, if the benefits of early childhood education are not primarily academic, what measurables exist that can be used to make the case for early ed from a public policy standpoint? Are there suggestions that you can give to people so they can call up their representatives and help make the case? Well, um, Top Early Learning Center is, um, we're celebrating our 15th year in providing early child education. And um, the businessman uh, that founded our schools is um, first a businessman at heart. And so you want to know that there's a return on your investment. Um, if you're a business, business person, you don't just invest in something that's you're not going to be able to see the next day. You want to know that it's making a difference, that it's making an impact. And so we started a longitudinal study where we started tracking our children through the K-12 system. And it's hard because when we're t talking about, okay, work that we're doing with one, two, three-year-olds, we're not going to necessarily see 
at age four, um, you know, the impact of that. So we want to be able to see whether or not what, they're do what we're doing is sticking, whether or not we're make they're making a difference uh, when they actually enter that K-12 system. And so we are now officially published, um, you know, with, with the results of our study. And what it is showing is that all of the brain development that occurred, you know, that Teresa and I mentioned, you know, our bra their brains were prepared for the higher level thinking. Their brains were prepared uh, to be able to absorb the new knowledge, to be able to, to sit in a classroom and not end up in the office you know, all of the time, to be able to uh, socialize with their peers and with their teachers and engage in the classroom instruction. And we're seeing actually that the result, that although there's some data that says that um, once the children enter fourth grade, um, you know, preschool doesn't stick. Um, but the reality is uh, our data is showing that not only is it sticking, but our children are even excelling more when they get to uh, middle and high school uh, because again the, because of the foundation that was established you know for that brain development and so um, you know I mean, if you're looking for for research and data to be able to give to a policymaker um, you know there's studies like ours or other studies that actually support the impact of or of high quality early child education and and, and support the need to continue to invest um, in education adequately and I would add that um, I think what we are um, supporting is the notion that early childhood doesn't need to be purely academically focused. We're not saying that just because you use developmentally appropriate practices in your classroom that you're not going to have an academic impact, because we do. Um, if you are doing good things in early childhood and you're doing language and you're doing play and you're doing self-directed learning and project-based learning and all of these things that are not kill and drill, but they still are forming the foundation for language and literacy and numeracy and social emotional skills and problem solving and all of these skills, we do see impact academically once they enter elementary. So we're not saying, well, don't focus on academics and then guess what, now there's no impact on academics. There is impact on academics, as well as other variables like attendance, like placement in special education, like referrals to the office, all of those other kinds of skills we have impact there as well. There's lots of research out there. It isn't, people sometimes struggle because we didn't do the research here in town. Well, they did that in North Carolina. Does it really work in Kansas? Well, that was in Chicago. Does that really work? We have some local data from top. And that's important data because it shows that you really do make a difference. But there's a lot of data that shows the same kinds of things. That good quality early childhood education by well-trained, empathetic teachers mm -hmm. makes a difference to children's lives. And the lessons that you learn as a preschooler, you carry with you into grade school and into middle school and into high school. And you may not, as a child, be able to say where you learned that because you don't know where you learned that. You learned it, that's all. You know it. But there certainly is research to document that the difference is made. 
And if you would like some of that, we can find you references, as can the library. Thank you. Um, to wrap it up here, I'd like for each of you to just sort of give um, uh, any last thoughts or, or advice that you would like to share with either parents or just individuals in the community who would like to um, sort of help with early childhood education in whatever ways they can. Uh, we like to kind of wrap up with ways that people can make a difference. So whatever, whatever kind of would come to your mind as uh, foremost ideas for them. I feel the thing that I would ask most parents to take away is foster independence in your early childhood student. Help them to do for themselves. Go get a step stool. Help them figure out how to climb up and turn on the water themselves, brush their teeth with a timer. Just foster independence throughout the home and it will carry over into the classroom and help them be more confident learners. I would say that as educators, we are horrible advocates for our own profession because we're too busy working with kids. <laughs> so we need the community to rally around early education. We need people to advocate for early education. I would also say that I think one of the best ways to help is to volunteer. There are lots of need for additional hands in an early childhood classroom. And so uh, volunteer at a school, volunteer at a center, uh, volunteer at the library, find some way to connect to an early childhood educator or an early childhood classroom, um, and your help will be very, very valued. I would echo that. Uh, volunteer more than anything. Um, come and visit our centers. Come and look at the work that we do, uh, the wonderful work that our teachers do to give them the credit because I'm not the one that does that. Um, you know, and, and, um, and volunteer. Uh, come in and read to our kids. Uh, work in the library. Uh, work in the, the art, art studio and help our kids learn to create and do things. Uh, our children love the idea of other people investing time in them. And so a person will come once and not come for a month and the child will be, they'll come in and visit and the children remember who you are because you came in and you invested your time and your energy uh, you know, with, to them and that means, that means a lot. And so just come and be a friend. It doesn't require skill, um, you know, it just requires you sitting on the floor and playing uh, with the child. And if you're comfortable in doing that, we'd love to have you. And I would say think about what, what's comfortable for you. You may be very comfortable coming into a classroom and hanging out with kids. You may be much more comfortable talking with an administrator and learning about something about the budget <coughs> and being able to talk in an informed way about how the money works in early childhood. And if that's, if that's something that is interesting to you, then pursue the things that are interesting to you and see if you can find ways to make an impact on that. Maybe, maybe you're not ever gonna read to a four-year-old in a classroom. But maybe you're going to learn about the budget struggles of a school or the budget struggles of a child care center and have a conversation with a legislator about that. So think about 
you know, think about what's interesting to you and, and see if you can find a way to pursue something, some kind of knowledge or some kind of work in a way that appeals to you. Thank you. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel. That was a ton of great information. Thank you guys so much for being here tonight. Um, I hope that you all will join us for our next month's Engage ICT Democracy on Tap event. It is Tuesday, August 21st, which is a week later than uh, you might expect it to be. The reason it's a week later is because August 15th is KMUW's Media Circus. It's our fundraising gala and it will be one for the books. It's gonna be amazing. We'll have NPR star Bill Curtis, we'll have Bonnie Bing and Suzanne Tobias and different media professionals. We'll also have fire dancers and dinner and snacks and cotton candy and I mean, it'll be amazing. It'll be a ton of fun. I hope you all can make it to that. It is our fundraiser. You can go to kmuw.org and get your tickets. We encourage you to do that. Um, and then please join us for the next Engage ICT again. That's August 21st. Um, and next time we'll be talking about community partnerships in education. Uh, and the conversation on education will continue then uh, until September. So thank you again for coming. We really appreciate all of you and have a wonderful evening. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Mark Statzer, Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.